from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This past Christmas, my brother was given the gift of having his origins traced through DNA. And, of course, I was interested in what would be discovered, I trust, for obvious reasons. He found that he, meaning we, originate from Scandinavia, but that's defined in ancient geographical terms, which included the territory of Germany. So that was no big surprise there. But that started my brother on a journey of tracing our ancestry with some precision. And it turns out that he has confirmed that our sixth great-grandfather was a man by the name of Elijah Hobart, who was a Revolutionary War soldier who stood with our newly rising nation in defense of Boston Harbor. And when Barb found that out, she just started doing a little legwork of her own on Elijah Hobart Hobart, and found that his father, which would be my seventh great-grandfather, was the Reverend Peter Hobart, who was a preacher in those early days of our nation. And it all had me thinking. Our physical roots, our heritage, indeed even our very origins, may tell us a lot about who we are for good or for bad. But the legacy that our ancestors left us never guarantees the legacy that we end up leaving behind. In other words, you may be descended from centuries of royalty. Your relatives may have lived in castles. But now here you are living in Guilford, Maine, tending a small goat farm. Well, according to family lore, that means totally unreliable and untrustworthy, especially since it originates from my mother. I am supposedly descended, heard this my whole life growing up, supposedly I'm descended from Otto von Bismarck, the Chancellor of Germany in the 1800s, and yes, for whom the battleship the Bismarck was named, which was sunk. The unsinkable ship that couldn't be sunk was sunk by the British ship, the Hood. So I don't know. Do you, it, family resemblance? What do you think? Huh? Picture the big honking mustache there and a little can opener on top. Or, uh. The ears. Now, see, actually, his lobes are attached. Mine aren't. That's genetic. There you go. My name, William, again, still in, the, in the, the realm of family lore, it was implied by my mother, was inspired by Kaiser Wilhelm, and who was yet another German chancellor, 
who died fairly recently, having passed away only a few years before I was born. Well, even if all of that was true, it has no bearing on who I am. And it has no bearing on what I have or haven't done in my life. And again, it made me think. We cannot change our earthly DNA. But the Lord can certainly change our earthly legacy and our eternal destiny. We come to the Bible this morning, and most churched people know that there are four Gospels, each written from a a slightly different vantage point to either underscore or emphasize certain aspects of the life of Christ and all that's involved with that. The Gospel of Matthew begins with the lengthy lineage of the person that we know as Jesus. His ancestors are traced for us by Matthew, going all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, through uh, Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish faith. But then we come to the Gospel writer Luke, and unlike Matthew, Luke mentions no genealogy, but he begins his book with the birth of Jesus in what we commonly call the Christmas story. And then you have John. John begins his gospel record with an allusion to Jesus' existence, which was long before his birth, even before time. And that's why he writes in his opening chapter, in verses 1 through 4, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Well, if there was any doubt of whom John was writing, a few verses later in verse 14 makes it exceedingly clear. He writes, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John wants us to know that this one called Jesus didn't merely come into being at Nazareth, but is eternal since he is fully God. And yet Matthew accentuates that he is fully man as well. And Luke, Luke underscores how it is that one could be both fully God and fully man. Oh, but that's just so much biblical lore or myth, some claim. Well, if there even was a Jesus, protest modern critics, centuries of embellishment and even outright fabrication made him who he is by those writing from a place pretty much of wishful thinking, having a vested interest in their presentation of him. In other words, Christians, those who wrote the Christian accounts, had a vested interest, obviously, in making Jesus, if he existed at all, into much more than he really was. And again, the critics cry out, you know, you don't read of this Jesus in anything outside of the Bible. If he was such a compelling individual, he would have shown up in real history, not just some religious book. That's not an altogether illegitimate point. It is, however, an altogether ignorant one. A number of years ago, an individual in this church, uh, 
signed me up for Biblical Archaeology Review, and he's been renewing it every year at Christmas time. I was familiar with BAR because many, many years ago, before I even came here to Maine, um, somehow I had obtained it for, I think, a year subscription or something, and I was pretty taken by it because I always like to find out what the critics are saying and using for evidence concerning our Jesus. And you see, even though it has the name of Biblical Archaeology Review, it is not a Christian publication. If anything, it is definitely skewed away from Bible-believing Christianity. But it does a good job in that objective scientific realm of looking at archaeological uh, finds and things that have underscored and, in fact, affirmed many things that come from the Bible. Well, this January and February issue happens to be one of the stories at any rate is, Did Jesus Exist? And so the individual writing this particular article notes that a man by the name of Cornelius Tacitus, he's usually referred to just as Tacitus, was a Roman senator, and he was arguably the finest historian that Rome produced. His last major work was titled The Annals. And in A.D. 64, when Nero was on his rampage burning Rome and blamed the Christians for it, Tacitus writes about the Christians whom both Nero and Tacitus despised. So again, as far as there being any kind of pro-Christian bias here, you can throw that right out the window. Well, Tacitus in his history makes a brief statement in his account about the one called Crestus, corroborating the New Testament on four pieces of accurate knowledge about Jesus. Here's what he tells us. First, the name Crestus was used by Tacitus to refer to Jesus as one distinctive way by which some referred to him. This Crestus was associated with the beginning of the movement of Christians whose name originated from this title. He was executed by the Roman governor of Judea, Tacitus makes a point to mention that. And the time of his death, according to this studied historian, was during Pontius Pilate's governorship of Judea during the reign of Tiberius. We'll then enter another historian, this time a Jewish historian, by the name of Flavius Josephus, commonly just known as Josephus, who also had no affection for Christians nor for Jews, which is rather ironic, and Josephus was firmly, you could say, in the pocket of the Roman Empire. And so again, any kind of skewed bias toward biblical Christianity is not something you would uh, be able to lay legitimately at his feet. Well, in Josephus's history, one of them anyway, called Antiquities of the Jews, since there were many people in the day named Jesus, it was not an unusual name, when writing about Jesus... Josephus goes out of his way to refer to that Jesus specifically as the one who is known as and called Messiah to distinguish him pointedly from the other Jesuses that were around in the day. But then we learn much more of this Jesus in Josephus' writings called the Testimonium Flavianum. And with taking just these two, Tacitus and Josephus, these are only two of the outside of the Bible sources, extra-biblical sources, this is what we know. The one called Crestus indeed existed as a man. His personal name 
was Jesus. He was called Crestus in Greek, a word that means Messiah in Hebrew. He had a brother named James. He won over both Jews and Greeks. Jewish leaders of the day expressed unfavorable opinions about him. Pilate rendered the decision that he should be executed. His execution was specifically by crucifixion, and he was executed during Pontius Pilate's governorship over Judea. So unless a person chooses to be willfully ignorant of the historical record, there is no question about the existence of at least the one called the historical Jesus. But of course, that has little bearing on his being received as Lord and Savior of mankind. Belief in the historical Jesus will not get anyone into heaven. I mentioned Matthew. Luke and John's starting points in their gospel story, leaving Mark, who starts the beginning of his record with Jesus already grown, commencing with his purposes for coming to earth. So we pick up in chapter 1 of Mark in verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. In you, Jesus, I am well pleased. Note that God the Father says this of and to nobody else. In human history. In the scope of the billions who have come and gone, born of man and woman, God says this of no one else. So then, why did Jesus have to die? In you, I am well pleased. So, why did Jesus have to die? The New Testament book by the name of Hebrews is a great explanation of the entire Old Testament where why Jesus had to die is clearly spelled out. In fact, that is the essential reason why we have the Old Testament in the first place. It clearly answers that question, why did Jesus have to die? Well, when sin, a word that is totally out of fashion today, but it's still a perfectly good word, When sin entered the world at Eden brought by the disobedience of mankind, let us remember that Adam and Eve, the two individuals God made, they were the sum total of mankind. They were it. So when they ignored the loving counsel of God in the garden, that's what sin is, the consequences were spelled out to them by God himself. Physical death, that is death of the physical fleshly body, and spiritual death, which is abandonment of an individual's soul to a place called hell. They were clearly pronounced. The New Testament explanation of this is found by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, when he writes, The wages of sin is death. 
But the gift, literally the charisma, the grace of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Centuries ago in the garden, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, choosing instead what was right for themselves, sin was no longer the result of an action. Sin became part, if you let me put it this way, it's not scientifically correct, but it's illustrative, but sin became a part of the genetic makeup, the DNA of mankind, of the human race. No longer did a person from Adam and Eve forward have to sin in order to become guilty of sin, as Adam and Eve did. It was now etched in to the very nature of all of mankind. Our literal ancestors, Adam and Eve, not having been born of imperfect parents, but rather created in consummate perfection without a sin nature, they needed to sin first before they could be charged with the consequences of sin. But the rest of humanity, on the other hand, Everyone from the lineage of our sin-filled ancestors from Eden enter this world already condemned. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Just as through one man sin entered the world, referring expressly to Adam here, and death entered through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is why the scriptures declare in the Old Testament and is repeated in the New Testament in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. This is God's assessment of the entire human race. And once sin entered the world, the physical world was also destined to destruction along with the fate of mankind. In Romans chapter 8 verse 20 we read that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, God, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And indeed, that's what Revelation tells us about at the very end. Even our planet suffers the consequences of sinfulness. The ravages of sin are all-encompassing. So from Adam and Eve forward, man became severed from God's favor. And until there could be found just one qualified person, perfect in all ways, who could satisfy God the Father's demand for perfection, man was destined to live on a ruined planet Without relational intimacy with God, man just putting in his time until the body finally breaks down and succumbs to death and returns to the ground. The heavenly foretaste of Eden before Adam and Eve sinned was forever ruined and man would die physically and spiritually again, meaning forever separated from God and that perfect place called heaven. But understand God 
is a loving God. And so God implemented a system of worship, a system that would enable man to at least approach God, having his anger against sin temporarily put on hold. And thus was born the Old Testament sacrificial system of Judaism, where blood is the key factor, for it points to the necessity of a coming perfect sacrifice. This is the way the New Testament writer of Hebrews explains it in chapter 9, verse 20. This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, referring to Moses, sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The writer of Hebrews gives clarity, helping us understand the proper purpose of Old Testament worship, where God, in fact, gave inflexible laws, precise rules that were to be observed meticulously because everything done in that sacrificial system of worship was conveying meaning about the inflexible character and holiness of God and the horrid sinfulness of man. And the point of it all was not just to take up two-thirds of the Bible, nor was it just for the Jews. In chapter 10 of the New Testament book Hebrews, here's what we read. The law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Meaning what? Meaning that God never intended the rites of Judaism to be anything but a temporary system reminding mankind how desperately it needs a Savior. There was nothing man could ever do to get back into God's good graces and have that intimate friendship with Him restored. There are no amount of sacrifices that could ever eliminate the guilt and the curse of sin, which is physical and spiritual death. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The Old Testament sacrifices only afforded a temporary stay of execution until the supreme sacrifice was secured. A supreme, once-for-all-time sacrifice that would eliminate, not just hold off the curse of sin and its attendant consequences. And in such hopelessness, their attentions were mercifully directed to the loving God who had already promised a coming Messiah, Savior, Redeemer. So the centuries tick away, the millennial tick away, and the long-awaited Savior, Jesus, is born 
through miraculous intervention, eliminating the need for a human father, the one through whom the sin gene of Adam is passed along. And so in Mark chapter 1, verse 9, on the inaugural day at the Jordan River, the one called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world makes his public debut and the heavens open and the Father's words are heard. You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. Finally, the ultimate acceptable sacrifice is revealed. One that is holy and to use the language of the Old Testament system of animal sacrifice was without blemish. One qualified in every way to take the sins of the world. Not just until the next sacrifice is performed, but one so perfect that it would be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, for the sacrificial lamb was none other than God himself, for only God could satisfy God. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, actually, he didn't. He didn't have to die. There was no earthly reason for him to give up his heavenly prerogatives, but then that would leave you and me condemned to an eternity separated from God. And on that day of reckoning, on that day of standing before God face to face, when it all comes to light, Jesus himself states in Matthew twenty-five forty-one, Then he, God, will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. But that is not God's desire for mankind. We're told by the Apostle Paul again to the letter of the church at Galatia, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, and hang he did. The grand substitution was made. God would come to earth. God would fulfill his own demand for perfection in all ways in this life and then give himself as the ultimate sacrifice once for all time, satisfying his own anger against sin by taking unto himself the consequences that your sin and mine deserved. So he didn't have to die. But it was either him or us. And he chose himself. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 1 through 8. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, some came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. You see, Jesus being fully God was himself 
sinless. And so the consequences of sin could not impose themselves on the sinless one. And so death was killed when Jesus rose from the dead. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote, wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 15, verses 55, beginning, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, the one and the only acceptable substitute. And that is why John wrote, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. He was the one, the only, acceptable sacrifice. God, second person of the Trinity, for only God could appease his holiness and his hatred of sin. And so while we all became cursed through the actions of one man, Adam, the Apostle Paul goes on to write in the same book of Corinthians that so all of us can become the righteousness of God through the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ. Jesus gives us any who would receive it. But you have to receive it. And interestingly enough, the second part of this verse doesn't simply say, but he who does not believe in the Son will not see life. No, it says, he who does not obey the Son will not see life. Meaning there's got to be meat to that profession of faith. There has to be a giving up of control of one's life, of one's will of one's opinions, of one's convictions, and start to learn through the lifelong process of coming to know the inspired, infallible, and errant authoritative words of God, what God delights in. And it's not a cumbersome and a burdensome list of rules to deprive us of life. It is, in fact, meant to increase our quality of life. God knows every individual in here. He knows exactly the state of your soul this day. And He has you here. For whatever reasons you thought you came here this morning, He has you here. If you do not know Him to hear this proclamation today, because He desires that no one perish. Don't walk out of this place today turning your back on the gift of eternal life one and only acceptable sacrificed lamb 
God incarnate, Jesus. And no, I'm not going to have every head bowed and every eye closed and stick up your right hand if you're going to receive Jesus today. There's nothing wrong with that. I do it myself at times. But God Almighty knows exactly what you are thinking at this moment and what's churning in your mind. So if you have never given yourselves to the Savior of your souls today, today is the day and the time to do so. I'm going to give up a prayer right now. There's nothing magical or formulaic about it. If it is the cry of your heart and you've never done this before, the Lamb of God would plead with you to do so. To let Him take the consequences of your sin upon Himself. And in exchange, He will give you His goodness and perfection, thus meriting eternal life in God's presence in heaven for all eternity. Lord God, I know that apart from you, I am damned. This day before you, I turn the reins of my life over to you, not even certain what that means or what that will look like. But I trust you, for your Spirit has given me faith today to believe, to do this. And I pray that you would set me on that road that you have for me. I've been on my road long enough. And I want to know, without doubt, that when I die, I will not be one of those sent to perdition, but one of those spending eternity with you in heaven. Hear my prayer, O God, out of the sincerity of my heart. Father, I pray this morning for those who love you today, for those who have been yours for years or perhaps even just for a few hours or a few days. Lord, you know their hearts, you know their minds, you know their weakness and their failings still, and yet you covered every one of their failings, past, present, and future. And in fits and starts, Lord, we cry out together to you. We believe, but help our unbelief. We want to be pleasing unto you. We want to obey you in all things because we know that will put a smile on you, the one who gave it all for us. And Lord God, I pray, strengthen the knees that are weak today for whatever reason. You are bigger than anything. And I pray in the days ahead, O oh God, you would cause us to come together as the body of Christ on earth and to lift one another up. And when we don't have the strength to move forward, that we would take a shoulder and we would drag, if necessary, to stay on your heels. Father, thank you for calling us all to this place today. I pray, let your mercies reign glory. We give praise to you in your name. Amen. Blessed be the Lord.